poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best. Instead of getting them off my chest to let them rest, unexpressed, I hate parading my serenading as I'll probably miss a bar. But if this ditty is not so pretty, at least it'll tell you how great you are. You're the top. You're the Coliseum. You're the top. You're the Louvre Museum. Hello and welcome to You're Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 28th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. And she also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Her podcast, Stagecraft, is part of the Broadway Radio Network. And we just had an awesome episode, Jan, didn't we? Yeah, he was he was pretty good. Um, this was uh, Dunja Our Love. Oh, so uh, it was great to hear your discussion with Donja, and uh, I, I'm always amazed when people that uh, are are so well uh, established and and have have had what looks to me from the outside as as great success in theater are so modest about the way in which they have. They they chose their art, and that was really great in Donja's thing. He was so uh, – it seemed like he was so amazed that somebody wanted to interview him, and I found the interview totally interesting. Did you, did you think that, or was I that know, my imagination? I know. It was – yeah, he was modest um, uh, uh, about it. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He really, he really is. Uh, um, listeners may know he's uh, done this trilogy of plays uh, looking at black gay life uh, through history. And um, the first play um, was Sugar in Our Wounds, which uh, was at Manhattan Theater Club uh, earlier this year. And now he has uh, Fireflies at the Atlantic Theater, uh, which is set during the uh, Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Sugar in Our Wounds was set uh, during, um, before uh, the Civil War. And uh, he has a third one that's uh, set during uh, the Black Lives Matter movement that hasn't yet been uh, produced. And I'm really eager to see that that third one. The, what was so interesting about it was was that he uh, he was telling the story about fireflies and how he was so receptive to uh, uh, you know a different train of thought and thinking about uh, I was going to write this from a man's point of view and somebody said what about the woman's point of view and uh, and he was like absolutely that's an important <laughs> yeah. story to be told and that I you know. Uh, not a lot of artists are receptive to a, a seismic shift like that, you know. Right. And so that was really interesting. So get over to our feed and take a listen to all of Jan's Stagecraft uh, podcasts. They're really interesting. So uh, let's start into the reviews. Michael and I got a chance to see The Ferryman over at the Jacobs Theater. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on The Ferryman? 
This is a play by Jez Butterworth that is, I guess you would call it epic theater with a very large cast coming to us from England, directed by Sam Mendes uh, in his return to, I guess, New York theater uh, after an absence of a while. And this has gotten a terrific reception and from what I can tell is a very hot ticket. And I think that if you see it, you'll you'll understand why it 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 really is um, quite something. I think uh, very well written, but really more in terms of the opportunities it affords to the incredible cast uh, playing uh, many of whom play an extended family in Ireland during the Troubles. Um, there is a uh, there is much discussion of the political situation and even a uh, recording of a radio broadcast of Margaret Thatcher to help you date the action really uh, quite specifically. And the basic situation is that there is a character who disappeared 10 years earlier and uh, we eventually – his family suspects what happened to him but doesn't know for sure and over the course of the play that disappearance and uh, uh, presumed death becomes more and more clear um, in in a really very very interesting way uh, there's also um, I guess the second plot is a, is a domestic drama involving uh, a husband and wife and uh, uh, per, a perhaps extramarital relationship that's going on that um, did not interest me as much but again I, I I would suppose I would say just for an opportunity for some some really great emoting and acting from this amazing cast um, and gosh uh, it there are so many people on stage including several children which uh, for people who know anything about labor laws and in the theater specifically it it, it can be difficult and cost prohibitive to put kids on stage. But here we have several of them. And uh, honestly, I I thought, to be honest, on the one hand, that all of these characters were not absolutely necessary. But having so many of them, uh, so many of these characters in the Carney family and the Corcoran family, etc., it really did give an amazing sense of community. And uh, also, the the set design uh, by Rob Howell uh, for this, you know, this very large common room of a farmhouse. Uh, it it the stage was just bursting with life uh, all throughout, and uh, it's the kind of theater that we don't see very much uh, here uh, because of the size of it and also the uh, the sensibility of it. Uh, had this pl- play written by a, an Englishman, but mostly about Irish characters. There is one English British character in it, and, and he fits in in a very, very interesting way. But um, I'm, I'm just going to uh, give a shout out to <laughs> the the major people in the cast: Dean Ashton, Patty Considine, Charles Dale, Laura Donnelly, Justin Edwards. 
Fra Fee. What, what a wonderful name. F-R-A-F-E-E. Uh, Fionola Flanagan back on stage. Uh, Tom Glenn Carney, Stuart Graham, Mark Lambert, Carla Langley, Connor McNeil, Rob Malone, Jerbla Malloy, Genevieve O'Reilly, Glenn Spears, and Neil Wright. Um, the uh, Another interesting thing about the play is it's oddly constructed in that it it is three hours and 15 minutes long, although, <laughs> you know, the old cliche, it passes so quickly you would almost not believe it. Uh, oddly enough, Act One is only one hour long, uh, and then there's a regular length intermission of 15 minutes. Then Act Two... Uh, or, or the second half, the second part of the show after intermission is a full two hours long with only a, a, a brief pause of about three minutes um, between the last two scenes. I, uh, I'm i not sure why it was written that way, and I didn't do the research. Maybe in uh, when it was done in England, perhaps they had two full intermissions and they uh, eliminated one here in order to bring the show in uh, within a – certain amount of time and, and not incur uh, extra expenses for that happen when shows run uh, more than three hours or after 11 p.m. Uh, but I, I did think that was a little odd. So I have to to find out why that is. But but truly, I was very concerned about the length when I heard about it beforehand, especially the two hour stretch. But I don't know um, about you, James. I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. It it really it I was so riveted that uh, I, it, I, I did not feel the length as a negative by any means. Um, the Ferryman is is a hard ticket, but it is still a play and not a musical. So I think uh, I'm hoping that it, it, people who want to see it won't have too much trouble getting tickets. And you really, really should if there's any way you can do that. So um, I have to lists this among the best five plays I've ever seen. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, and, and Michael, you, I, you and I are inhabiting the same exact headspace. I saw this. I said 315. I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I hope this is good. And then uh, went into it, and it flew by. I, I was un, I, I loved this show, and I had uh, – over the last couple of days, many discussions with my wife about about this show, about the different – every character was so thoroughly thought out. And I felt that every character really had a place in the show. My wife really felt like they could have cut back on some of the characters and they could have made the show shorter. Not that she – you know, she also really thought that the three hours flew by, but um, – I thought it maybe was an indulgence to have thirty characters, thirty people in a in a, in a Broadway play, and uh, and from a producerial standpoint, I was I thought to myself, how is Sonya Freeman going to make this pay off for the investors? But that's not our problem. Um, <laughs> exactly. But this is this is really really wonderful, and I wonder how long that the folks who came from the London production will stay with it. Uh, I, I was just I was blown away by this play, and, and I, I can't recommend it enough. I, I it was really wonderful. The the children were wonderful. The baby was one. I, you know, you think you think about this. You you know all all the cliches of don't act with children, babies, and animals. This play has got it all. You know, it's got a live goose on stage. It's got <laughs> it's got rabbits. It's got you know apples. It's got 
children. It's got infants. I a mean, goose. A, yeah. I mean, I, what do we say about this show that it is epic in the content, but didn't feel epic at all? I I really loved it, and I think that they might have had a brief pause and. Uh, I'm not sure. We saw a 7 p.m. performance. I'm not sure if they're doing a lot of 7 p.m. performances, but I would. I wonder if they're doing 7 p.m.s because of the child labor laws. Um, oh yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and we didn't even mention the children. They're just so so the, many. This, the children are so many and so incredibly wonderful. So on top of it, and uh, I and also that baby. Yeah, that baby. We we want want to you know make it clear. The baby looks like it's about. I don't know, one year old at most. Maybe. At most. It's a couple of, you know, nine months to a year old. And, and uh, so incredibly adorable and well-behaved. I, I, I wonder if they've had any... I wonder if they know, have alternate babies. I, 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 I think, yes. They I think must. I they must. I think, yeah, that, I don't think a baby could do a two-show day according to labor laws. But also, yeah, I mean, I wonder if they, they've had any uh, mishaps or whatever in terms of outcries. But the night I went, the baby was just just completely uh, involved yeah. <laughs> and silent and sweet and unbelievably adorable. And, and it also added to – I think the having that baby added greatly to the play because I don't know why it made me think that maybe something might happen to it. Yeah. Because because there's so much um, menace lurking in this play that uh, I, I was imagining the worst. Uh, and I wouldn't say the – well, <laughs> well, the worst doesn't happen until the, the very, very end. But, but, it, but it, uh, I'm happy to say it doesn't involve the baby. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm the ferryman. A ghost I, – I, I think it could win best play. I think yeah. that – you know that this is a really important story to be told about the the uh, the political situation in Northern Ireland and England uh, back in Margaret Th- Mar- uh, Maggie Thatcher's days and and the and, and you know if you know the politics of that day it really uh, helps the story if you don't know the politics of the day you're still going to understand the story and I mentioned to my wife I was like I wonder if my son's high school social studies class could go to this show uh, I think it's really really interesting point of view to it and she said well there's a lot of language in it and things like that I was like eh, kids these days language is not so much a big deal I don't yeah. really know if uh, but uh, Ferryman I, I, Jan I can't wait for you to see it because I really um, want to hear yeah, what you're I'm saying. Yeah, I'm scheduled to see it in two weeks. So now you guys have got me really excited about <laughs> seeing it. So yeah. that is tremendous. The Ferryman, get your tickets if you can. Go see it. It's so, so wonderful. Okay, next up. Jan, you saw India Pale Ale at Manhattan Theater Club. So uh, what do you think about it? Well, this is a play that I was really looking forward to because it's by the playwright Jacqueline Backhouse. And she wrote uh, Men on Boats, which uh, uh, played, I guess, three years ago now, <clears throat> and was one of my favorite shows of, uh, of that year. And so I was very excited to see what she would do next. And uh, um, I'm sorry to say that I left very disappointed uh, in this show. India Pale Ale is uh it it turns turns out that Bacchus is um part 
uh, Punjabi. Her mother is uh, Indian, and she wanted to write this play to honor uh, the tradition of her, her maternal family. And it is set in uh, Wisconsin, um, um, modern-day uh, Wisconsin, and we follow these connected uh, Indian families. The main family is the Batra uh, family. And because it's it's modern-day, and because she is making a point about uh, otherness and the fact that people tend to look at Indian families or Asian families or maybe Hispanic families as other. She wants to really make the point that these are American families. And so the uh, two young guys in the play are always calling one another bro. And there is a lot of contemporary sort of slang uh, uh, language. And the central conflict seems to be, and I I hesitate over the word conflict because it's not really much of one, is that the daughter in the Batra family, who's known as Baz, her real name is Bazminda, but everybody calls her Baz. Baz wants to leave um, home and move to, they live in a small town in Wisconsin. She wants to move to Madison and open a bar. And uh, she does this uh, and then is called home because there's a tragedy. And the tragedy plays off uh, an actual tragedy uh, that happened, uh, I guess, several tra- tragedies that have happened recently in the Indian community where people have attacked uh, temples and either ravaged them and in some cases have uh, killed people who were worshipping uh, in those uh, temples. And so there's a abrupt change because the first act, and this is a two-act play, is played almost like a sitcom. There are couples who are in love and falling out of love, and it's very broad, very broad humor. And then we transfer to their reckoning with the tragedy that's happened in their uh, local temple. The other thing that's a factor in this is that the Batra family is very proud of the fact that they descended from pirates and uh, they invoke their pirate ancestor when things are difficult for them. And the play actually begins, oddly, with Boz talking in, like, pirate language, you know, with Yar and Medes and so on, as she's talking to her uh, pirate ancestor. There's... They... This is directed by Will Davis. Uh, both he and the playwright like playing with uh, theatrical convention. And so there's dancing in this show. Uh, there, there are songs. There is a surreal scene where uh, the pirates return. Um, and uh, there's also a there's also a, a part of it where the actors go out into the audience and uh, give people in the audience samosas to eat. 
Uh, a lot of people left their samosas. I had not had dinner. I ate my samosa. Delicious. If you go, best part of the show, eat the samosa. Um, I get what she wanted to do, but it just wasn't cohesive because there were so many different tones the surrealism of the pirates the sort of sitcom part of the first act where everybody's uh, being over the top funny the tragedy of the the the, the last part heart which is really played to the audience saying you know we're just like everyone else we're human we should all come together tonally it's just too up uh and down and so i left very disappointed in india pale ale well i tell you one thing though i'd like to hear you do the pirates talk again <laughs> <laughs> I've often thought that uh, the Broadway Radio uh, Network needs a uh, a restaurant review podcast. So if you want to do the samosas, uh, the samosa, the 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 fried Indian food, not the samosa drink, the alcoholic drink, you know, mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which a different spelling, uh, different content. So uh, yeah, best part of the show, eat the samosa. So. Uh, all right. Yeah, they probably I don't won't expect you, them to put that they, on their pull quote. Yeah, you know, it probably won't be hanging outside of city center uh, stage one. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So next up in the uh, review section, Michael and I got a chance to see the Waverly Gallery last night. In fact, so Michael, tell us about the Waverly Gallery. Well, the Waverly Gallery is, I think, a beautiful play by Kenneth Lonergan. That was originally done in 2000 off-Broadway, and at the time won just about every award possible for Eileen Heckert, who created the role of Gladys in the play. Uh, It was, as I said, off-Broadway, so she was not eligible for and therefore could not win a Tony. Uh, had had it been on Broadway, I'm sure she would have, but instead she won all of the the various uh, acting awards for Off-Broadway for a leading actress. And the um, this is, a, as I said, a, a really beautiful play about this lady who runs a an art gallery in the village off Washington Square Park. Uh, and Gladys is is descending into dementia gradually. Uh, Not that gradually, uh, but at at the beginning of the play, she seems basically fine. And then as we see her interacting with her family and uh, this fellow who comes to show his art in her gallery, we we can see her mind deteriorating. Um, It must be as equally hard to write uh, that kind of material as as to act it, and I always thought from the beginning that Ken, Kenneth Lonergan did a a really wonderful job with it. I I can't imagine doing that, but but he really I, I think gives us a, a very vivid picture of this this tragedy that's happening to this woman. Uh, that said, uh, there, there is a great deal of comedy in, in this play, especially in this, the, the first parts of it. And then of course it, it darkens at the end. We have, um, now we have comedy legend Elaine May 
<laughs> returning to appear on Broadway for the first time in about 50 years. Um, so that's an incredible feat in itself. Uh, this this production is directed by Lila Neugebauer and also stars Lucas Hedges, Joan Allen, Michael Sarah, and David Cromer. Uh, and uh, Elaine May is, you know, legendary from her work with Mike Nichols and then since then as a writer and director. And she... Uh, is the fact that that she is still among us and came back to Broadway is it's it's like one of those miraculous things that happens that you just say you you just want to give all possible praise to people who made it happen. Uh, the, this show is running at the Golden Theater, and uh, I, and Elaine May is transcendent in it uh, to be I, I, I think it's important to be perfectly honest at at the beginning of the play especially I, I noticed it seemed to me that there were perhaps some sections where she was um, pausing and uh, maybe stumbling slightly in her lines not as an acting thing but because that w what was that was the actress it's herself having a little bit of trouble. And I also thought that occasionally I, I felt maybe she was referring to notes on a table to, uh, to keep her on track. But I, I want to make it clear that, that that's perfectly, perfectly understandable under the circumstances. And for this particular character, it was not a negative at all. And, and, if that was that is what is necessary to give us the incredible privilege of seeing Elaine May in this amazing role in this beautiful play, then I then that is fine with me. I uh, urge everyone to see this. And you know, I um, I went to NYU for grad school, and uh, I remember I was around there um, around the time when this play originally opened. Uh, in around 2000 and there is or was an actual gallery at, at Waverly place uh, and Washington square West, I believe uh, that uh, apparently was the, the, the gallery that served as the basis uh, for this play that, that uh, Kenneth Lonergan drew upon. And I was there the other night uh, in the village to see another show. And I, and I wanted to check and see if the gallery is still there. I I did not get a chance to do so. Um, but I, I do have to check that out. And I remember that having it there as an actual space just um, somehow, you know, it, it, it made this play even more real to me. Uh, so I'm so glad it's back with, with really a a, a superb cast aside from in addition to Elaine May Lucas Hedges is is one of our best young actors and is is really in the news now because he's got a new movie called Boy Erased in which he's, he plays the central character Joan Allen of course uh, a deservedly lauded actress on stage and screen Michael Sarah who you know uh, really he he keeps coming back to Broadway and, and doing superlative jobs. And then we have David Cromer, um, who is primarily known to, I guess, most people as a director, but here he is acting on stage and it's 
wonderful to see him in that capacity again. So there's so much about this that is so special. I urge everyone to see it. So um, I had a very, very difficult time at this show. Um, And not because it wasn't good, because I thought it was outstanding, but it really cut very close to the bone personally for me. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was very hard to watch, uh, and it, it made me really – it made me – I didn't sleep last night oh. after seeing the show. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it's not because this show is bad. This, it's an important thing to say, but um, this show is – it was so true to life for me uh, that uh, – I think again, it's an it's an important part of what theater does is to because I I don't know that there's a solution a, a good solution here for what this family was going through and dealing with the uh, advanced stages of of Alzheimer's or dementia or anything that uh, is going on and as we have an aging population we have to address these situations and perhaps through uh, stories being told like this there will be more of an understanding and. Uh, a frustration from the caretaker side and a frustration from the patient side. It's a very interesting topic, and this was so well done, and it felt so true to life for me, especially the whole uh, part where Gladys was like, okay, so the gallery's going away. I'll be, I'm will be. i going to go back and work f- as a lawyer. And you, you just... Yeah. You, uh, what do you say about that? And <laughs> it's very funny because we were, uh, my wife and I were talking about it on the way home. Um, the aspect of the repetition where you you get frustrated because uh, you you keep saying to the person the same stuff over and over, and it doesn't seem to be sticking. And uh, it's a very difficult thing. But this was such an incredible cast and the opportunity to see Elaine May on stage up close and personal. And uh, great to see David Cromer as an actor and and his role as the uh, second husband and uh, in this situation where he is, you know, uh, it's sort of like he didn't buy into this. And then the reaction, I don't know, Michael, Did what did you feel? You, there were certain things that Glad, uh, Elaine Mates' character Gladys said last night where it, it struck home with a lot of uh, the people in the audience who is typically uh, a playgoer on Broadway is a little bit older. Um, mm. And they, and they, they laughed uh, especially hard at some of the things that the Gladys character would say about, about aging. Uh, well, and also the references. Uh, she's supposed to be a you know a really colorful old New York mm-hmm. character, New York Jewish character. That uh, you know there are, we don't see those portrayed on the stage so much anymore. And and there was the laughter of recognition among yes among many in the audience. And then of course, so when she started to deteriorate, it became all the more moving. Uh, uh, the Lucas Hedges character is the, is her grandson Gladys's grandson, and he bears much of the brunt of this situation because he lives down the hall from her uh, above the gallery or in the same building as the gallery. And there's that incredibly sad scene, uh, sequence of scenes towards the end where over the course of one really long night, Gladys keeps getting up in the middle of the night and walking down the hall to uh, 
to knock on her grandson's door and and he's and and you can you know sense his frustration he desperately needs sleep but he he wants to help her but he becomes so frustrated that he becomes angry and and it's 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 all incredibly real and and tremendously moving um what did you think about this uh this michael Sarah character don bowman uh well, you know, I was just going to say, I, I, I think that one could look at it and, and, and see that character as perhaps a flaw in the play because yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't really seem to have much to do with what's going on. He's just some guy who shows up and, uh, and Gladys is very nice to him and offers him the gallery to show his work. And then he shows the work, but he doesn't really seem to be uh, – he doesn't really seem to understand what's happening to her or to uh, care that much. Uh, but I think that, I, you know, I think that Ken Lonergan did that specifically to show how that happens in life sometimes. And some people just, they're so wrapped up in their own stuff that they, they just don't want to get involved or they can't get involved and life goes on. And there are going to be people who are, you know, who love you and are invested in you are going to do everything possible to help you. And then there are going to be all the other people who just you know, really are, are, are not uh, going to become invested in it. Um, does, does that interpretation make sense to yeah. you? Yeah. The, uh, my wife had brought up, they, they made, uh, Lonergan had made such a point of going out of his way to make a point that um, this character, Don Bowman's, ha- had very little money but had a very expensive car mm-hmm. um, and was traveling back and forth from um, – Massachusetts to New York to go to the gallery to get his work shown. Uh, and my wife said, I-, I thought at first that he was some sort of scam artist, that he was going to oh. try to scam her, which yeah. made sense with the expensive car and not having money and things like that. But it's it just like that character seemed to go nowhere. And I, I was interested maybe that ended up on the cutting room floor, the development of that character or or it's just not as uh, uh, fleshed out as it could have been. But that was my only little quibble with uh, with the show, but what a cast uh, and a, a story that is happening every day. The, <laughs> the other interesting part about it was is that they talked about the village as this terrifying place where it was all <laughs> sleazy and run down and cheap places and things like that. And, you know, the Waverly Gallery right now would probably be, you know, a a five million dollar space, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So that is the Waverly Gallery down at the Golden Theater. It's a limited run through January twenty seventh, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Your Jan, response to it really uh, is a is a real testament to how powerful a play it is. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, Yes. Yeah, I mean, actually, I was sitting directly behind James and uh, his wife last night, and uh, you know, we were talking before and at intermission, and but then at the end of the play, I felt like everyone in the audience was so moved that people were very, very quiet when they exited. Hmm. I I didn't feel like I had much that I could say. Yeah, because it's it's just incredibly moving and a, a beautiful, beautiful play. Hmm. So uh, next up in our review section, uh, Jan, you saw a girl from the North Country at the public. We've seen it and talked about it, but I was really yeah. interested in hearing your take on this. So tell us about Girl from the North Country. Well, you guys have already talked about it, so I know 
that most uh, listeners know that this is a play that Connor McPherson uh, uh, wrote inspired by uh, the music of Bob Dylan. It's hard to categorize because it's not quite a musical, um, although there's lots and lots of music. It's not a traditional music. It's also directed uh, by McPherson and once again, we have a really large cast, and it's set. The play is set during the Great Depression uh, in Duluth, Minnesota, which is Dylan's uh, hometown, uh, and it's set in a boarding house uh, where a number of people uh, who have fallen on hard times uh, uh, are 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 trying to just make it through uh, this difficult time. The play has drawn, uh, the show has drawn a lot of praise and it is a beautiful uh, uh, show in in many ways. I think it's beautiful to look at. I think McPherson has staged it uh, beautifully. Who knew that he was so good as a as as a, a director it has um an incredible cast filled with veterans um like uh robert joy and mark kudish and david pitu and mayor winningham and then some uh, and Stephen gardis and and then a number of younger uh performers who who were new to me and all were really very good in their roles and I just wasn't moved Um, I went in excited about this because I'd heard so much about it as a matter of fact I ran into a a friend in the lobby who this was this is at the public theater and I ran into a friend in the lobby who was going to see another of the shows down there and uh, he asked me what I was going to see and I said a girl from the north country and he said oh oh I envy you I hope you I'd love to see it again I hope you love it as much as I did I think this is my favorite show uh, of the year and I there were just so many stories uh, that I didn't get a chance to really connect with any one uh, uh, story I think this was intentional uh, on 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 McPherson's part, not that I wouldn't connect, but that the, the these were impressionistic moments from these people's lives. Uh, when I got home, I I said to myself, this was like a poem. Uh, there 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 were just impressions, moods, and that's the way the music plays as well. The music is not really used to uh, advance the plot or even to tell us a lot about the characters. It's used almost in the way that music is used in movies uh, as, a, as a way to enhance the mood, to help the viewer uh, share in the experience that the people uh, on stage, in this case, are, are going through in a visceral uh, way. Um, but 
I realize I'm just a prose person. I I really need a connective narrative. And because this play didn't have one, I could admire it, which I did greatly, um, particularly uh, Mayor Winningham's performance. But it wasn't for me a show that, 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 that I loved and that I came out feeling in the way that you guys have just talked about the Waverly Gallery, where it really hit you and uh, moved you. And, and this, this show didn't do that for me. Yeah, I'm with you, Jan. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to what I, I said last week, but I, I was so surprisingly disappointed in the, in the book, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 text uh, after what I had read about it, I, I think the songs are wonderfully performed, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of talent on stage. But um, I I just didn't get it. You know I, what I did find interesting uh, that I had not mentioned last week is that Dylan's most famous song is not included, "Blowing in the Wind," and I wonder, do you suppose that that well, I'm sure it was intentional. Do you suppose it's because McPherson said, oh, well, that's just so iconic that we, if we bring that in, that will just distract everyone? And uh, I, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, uh, you know, obviously I know Bob Dylan in the way that you'd have to be like brain dead <laughs> not to know Bob Dylan. I mean, I know Bob Dylan. I know Bob Dylan's music in that way, but I'm not a Dylan person, so I don't. I don't know deep into his songbook, if you will. And, and I feel as though a lot of these songs came from that, that he really, um, I've read that the Dylan uh, people, Dylan and his people said, okay, take what you want. And he went really deep into uh, Dylan's music. And I think that was, that was intentional. And I think it's something that probably Dylan appreciated uh, because it, it showed the fullness at one point. Well, not at one point at the um, intermission, I felt a lot of these songs have the same mood, the mm. same tone. Yes. It's sort of uh, elegiac. Is that the word? Um, yeah. It's sort of like that. Um, I need a little something, a little upbeat. I'm making <laughs> myself sound like I don't know what, but I need a little something upbeat. And then the when the uh, second act opens, there is an upbeat, uh, 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 relatively upbeat number. Oh yeah. Um, and 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 so McPherson, I think the decision not to use blowing in the wind was very conscious because I think that decision to put in this uh, upbeat number was very conscious. So I think he's uh, very aware of what he was doing. I thought it was also interesting uh, that in a way this uses the John Doyle model where actors play uh, instruments, but it didn't seem as annoying to me (laughs) as, as, as Doyle often does. I mean, at one point Mark Kudish is on the drums. um, The, uh, uh, musician uh, uh, Todd Allman, uh, he is a musician, but he also plays a character in the the the, the uh, in the in the show, and so there was that uh, back and forth, which I thought was handled very well, and I just thought they were just incredibly beautiful, just stage scenes. Mm. Uh, uh, a use both of projections and just uh, 
blocking of 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 actors that and lighting that just created uh, uh, beautiful scenes and uh, it, this has been pleasing a lot a lot of people I think you and I are outliers here Michael I guess apparently yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, the Blowing in the Wind thing, uh, it's a song that seemingly could have covered the entire show. Well, exactly. (laughs) Yes, I mean, that's one reason I brought it up. Uh, The show does have Like a Rolling Stone, which Mm -hmm. is an extremely famous song. So so that one wasn't avoided, but Blowing in the Wind is not there. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Uh, so that is Girl from the North Country at the Public. It's uh, through December 23rd, and you can't get a ticket, so don't try. <laughs> so, I'm kidding. So they're actually the public uh, has got a cancellation line and, uh, and things like that. Uh, so there are the chance to get a ticket, but uh, tough it's one. Tough, tough, yeah, tough one tough. to get. All right. Uh, Michael, you saw the Book of Merman at St. Luke's Theater. Uh, So tell us about this Book of Merman. The Book of Merman is about exactly what it sounds like it's about. It's about two Mormons who go to visit Ethel Merman. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Truth in advertising. Uh, yes, this is a, a uh, musical, a new musical parody, I guess you would almost call it, a book by Leo Schwartz and D.C. Cathro, music and lyrics by Leo Schwartz. And yeah, uh, we have Elder Shumway, played by Chad Burris, and Elder Braithwaite, played by Kyle Ash Wilkinson. And they knock on the door of, um, well, it, it, they knock on the door of someone who appears to be Ethel Merman, uh, played by Carly Sakalov. And so uh, what little content there is in the play is uh, uh, partly about whether sh- this is actually Ethel Merman or if uh, it's uh, perhaps a uh, – a hallucination that the guys are having, or if maybe it's an impersonator, or you're not you're not sure in, until the end. And and the end, uh, I, I unfortunately have to say, is really not very satisfying. What turns out to be the truth of this lady, but um, this I didn't know what to expect in terms of the score. Uh, before I saw the show, but what it is is a bunch of songs, uh, many of which are. Uh, takeoffs or parodies in the style of, I guess you would say, Forbidden Broadway, except in this case, uh, the it's not the original music. Uh, it, the music uh, by Leo Schwartz uh, for these songs uh, is uh, – the songs are supposed to sound like famous Merman songs such as You Are the Top, uh, From Anything Goes, and Some People from Gypsy. Uh, by the way, we're going to use those two as our musical moments <laughs> for this podcast because uh, I think we need to hear from the real Ethel Merman. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, whereas in Forbidden Broadway, the, 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 as we all know, the original music is used and then Gerard Alessandrini would write these fabulous parody lyrics. Well, here uh, – uh, as I say, the music is in the style of, and the lyrics uh, also mirror the original lyrics. But that's um, 
that's what you get here. Oh, and the opening number uh, is a is a is is this even possible? A parody of the opening number from the Book of Mormon, the hello number, and it starts off so similarly that my friend and I both turned and looked at each other uh, because we were like, what? It was almost as if they used the actual song. Um, so I that's how close that number is. Um, this uh, sounded like it might be one of those shows that's amusing for five minutes and then not so much thereafter. Uh, it, uh, for me, it actually uh, did sustain the humor for quite a lot of the running time, partly uh, due to the performances of the cast, um, especially Chad Burris and Kyle Ash Wilkinson. They have a lot of chemistry uh, and a lot of charm as these two Mormons. And Carly Sakalov really has a great voice, so she does a wonderful job with the Ethel-type songs. Um, I uh, I think it's, it's a pleasant diversion and uh, not a very expensive ticket, uh, as most of the, is the case with most shows at the St. Luke's Theater or, or all shows at the St. Luke's Theater. Uh, I think it's worth seeing. I, I do want to mention that I uh, that uh, I had a problem at the beginning, uh, and, I, and I went in not that happy, because what happened right before the show was that for some reason, the house didn't open until 15 minutes before the show started and there is not a lot of lobby space in the St. Luke's theater. And so I arrived to find, um, lots of people, you know, herded like cattle standing as if like in a crowded subway car waiting for the doors to open. So that made me very unhappy. And then once I got in, uh, I felt the temperature in the theater was not as warm as it should have been. And then when the show started, I, I noticed a problem that I've noticed actually at several other shows at the St. Luke's Theater. Uh, it was extremely overamplified, uh, beyond the point of all reason and necessity. I don't know why uh, that would be a continued problem there, especially since um, it's not like it's a resident company at, at the St. Luke's Theater. You know, people rent the show out, uh, the, the, the theater out for various shows, uh, and it's not always the same producers or creative team. So I don't know why that is, but I wish that they would address this because it's, it's really annoying and sometimes almost painful. Um, this uh, show was directed and choreographed by Joe Langworth, and the music director uh, and uh, orchestrator is Aaron Benham. Uh, so as I said, a, a pleasant diversion. I hope uh, when you go, I hope the temperature is better, and I hope they turn down the volume. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, that is the Book of Merman, Berman at St. Luke's Theater. Uh, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And it's uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday only production. Right. So uh, next up, Jan, you got to see, let me get this correct, Lewiston Clarkston at Rattlesticks, uh, Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. Uh, so tell us about this. These are two plays by uh, Samuel D. Hunter, who is uh, a marvelous playwright put that out there um he uh, is also a genius because the macarthur fellowship people uh gave him one of their genius grants back in 2014 uh these two plays 
which are performed in tandem uh, at Rattlestick, were originally produced as two separate plays. But each of them plays off the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition, and they are set in the towns named for uh, those uh, explorers, I guess, Um, Meriwether, uh, uh, Lewis, and um, William Clark, who, as everybody knows, journeyed uh, 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 through the West um, at the bequest of, of, of Thomas Jefferson shortly after uh, the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, these two plays are set in uh, contemporary uh, 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 America. And what they're looking at, as all of uh, uh Hunter's work has done. People may recognize some of his plays, um, A Bright New Boise, The Whale, um, The Harvest, Pocatello. All of his plays are set in that Great Plains uh, uh, geographical uh, area. And they are dealing with the decline of that sort of pioneering spirit that was launched with uh, Lewis and Clark and the uh, migration of uh, white Americans into the rest of, uh, of the country. The two plays, uh, the people at Rattlestick are requiring people to see both plays the same uh, uh, performance. Um, It adds up to uh, a little over three hours and they serve dinner in between. Um, uh, This is, uh, this food trend is like catching on everywhere. Okay, we're going to have to uh, do that that uh, theatrical food show. Absolutely. They serve a barbecue chicken dinner. Um, in between, if you are uh, a vegetarian, you order your dinner before you uh, uh, show up at the theater. The theater at Rattlestick has been reconfigured. So, so they've taken all the chairs out, the traditional uh, seating, and they've replaced it with folding chairs uh, around the room where audience uh, where the audience sits each performance can seat no more than I think 51 52 people Uh, during the intermission they set up tables and uh, you you pick up your your dinner if you're a vegetarian you get barbecue tofu as opposed to barbecue chicken Um, and you see one play as one act the other uh, uh, after the, the meal. The first play, Lewiston, uh, revolves around, uh, a, and the, the people in the plays are descendants of Lewis and Clark and are very proud in both instances that they are descendants uh, of these people, although um, uh, their lives are very different than one would expect of uh, people who uh, helped to uh, discover, create, found um, uh, 
such a large part of, of the country. The plot in the first is there's a, a woman who uh, owns who owned a great deal of land had a, a large uh, cattle ranch over the years she's now in her 70s she's widowed uh, and over the years she has sold off uh, pieces of the land so that now she has a very small parcel of land left next door or near her, her, her land, a developer is building condos and wants to buy the last parcel of, uh, of land and is offering her uh, the ability to have one of the condos in the complex and uh, to live this you know, sort of posh life as opposed to the life that she's living now because she's scraping uh, to get by. She's living with um, uh, another local uh, who moved in when his uh, family uh, abandoned him, not abandoned him, but sort of shunned him. We found out he's the son of the local minister and uh, he's gay and the family has shunned him. And so the two of them live together in, in, in a kind of platonic marriage. Uh, they depend on one another. They help support one another financially. And they're trying to decide whether or not they should take this offer from the developer when uh, a, a young woman shows up and sort of throws things awry. Um, Arnie Burton uh, plays the minister's son. Uh, uh, Kristen Griffith uh, is uh, the the owner of the of the land, and a young woman named Leah Carpell uh, plays the mysterious young woman who shows up. Um, it's they the, the woman, uh, the the rancher, and her tenant, if you will, or her partner, earn some of their income by selling fireworks and there's symbolism there too they have a roadside stand where they sell fireworks but they can no longer really sell the really uh spectacular fireworks because laws prohibit them from doing it and so they're selling little sparklers and their business isn't so hot uh, they have to supplement it uh, in other ways, working at the local fast food place and so on to, to, to make ends meet. So that's one look at where America has come to. The second play, which is, I think, the far better of the two, um, much more emotionally uh, uh uh, arresting. It, it looks at two young men who work in Costco. One is a local in Clarkston, uh, and he's been uh, assigned to train a newcomer. The newcomer is not only new to working at uh, at Costco, but he's also uh, new to the town. Uh, he comes from uh, from back east. It's pretty clear pretty soon that he's much more affluent um, and 
it's looking at these two young men and our suppositions about who they are in life, this Easterner, this affluent Easterner, this working class Westerner, um, and they become much more complex people than we originally think they are, and they form a relationship. And there is a third character, the mother of the uh, the young local man, who is a woman who is fighting uh, opioid addiction. And this has been obviously a, a, a burden on on her son. Uh, th- their relationship has pivoted around her addiction and her attempts to rehabilitate herself. And these three characters are giving us another view of where the country is at this point in time, where the traditional uh, 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 country, where the people that Donald Trump appeals to when he's talking about make America great again. These people are the people that he's talking to because they no longer feel great. They no longer feel greatness. Um, It's a long evening, uh, but particularly with the second play, it's really worth it. Uh, Samuel Hunter is just really one of the the, the finest uh, playwrights that we have working uh, today. And these, as I said, these are revivals of uh, plays that have been done before, but the linking of the two really emphasizes the point uh, that he's uh, trying to make. They sound... Um, uh, downers, they sound somewhat depressing, and they are dealing with difficult subjects. But there is, um, and I don't think this 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 ruins it because it's not quite the way one would expect. But there is a moment of uplift at the end of the play. I would really um, recommend people go see these two plays, and not just for the food this time. <laughs> All right. So uh, there it is, uh, Lewiston Clarkston at the Rattlestick Playwrights Theater on Waverly. It's playing through December 2nd, so uh, we have a link to that in the show notes. Um, and speaking of food theater, I don't, I don't know if you realize this, James, but, but this show I'm just about to talk about, Shake and Bake, Love's Labor's Lost, uh, gives us an eight-course tasting menu. I, uh, I I don't know um, how I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, you gave yourself your own introduction there. Tell us about uh, <laughs> Love's Labor's Lost. Yeah, I mean, the food is really good, but uh, I would also go for the acting. This is a uh, very energetic, uh, quick version of Love's Labor's Lost. I, uh, I don't know the play well enough to know for sure, but I think it has been quite uh, heavily edited, but not to its detriment. Uh, and it is done in a in an event space down on Gansford Street. Um, let's see, created and adapted by David Goldman, Victoria Ray Sook, and Dan Swern. And the very talented cast consists of Og Agulue, Mary Glenn Frederick, Matthew Goodrich, Rami 
Mar- Margron, excuse me, Rami Margron, Charles Osborne, Darren Ritchie, Victoria Ray Sook, Alex Spath, Alan Trinka, and Joe Venticelli. And they're performing the play uh, in, a, in a, as I said, a very energetic American style, uh, very uh, making the speech sound uh, very contemporary uh, with modern day inflection, certainly no British accents or anything like that. Um, and, you know, that's a style we've become familiar with, and I think it works very well, especially for the lighter plays, the comedies. Uh, This is uh, an extremely enjoyable evening. I actually thought that the way that the food and drink were served was somewhat distracting because it happened, uh, the service happened at various points during the performance. And also, um, as uh, the friend that I went with commented, you don't, you're not at tables, you're, you're seated on couches, basically. And there are uh, tables, uh, very low uh, coffee table type tables in front of you, but you, uh, you can't really use them to eat on. So you, you have the situation where you have to hold a plate in your hand and, uh, and, just eat that way while the show's going on, but because you have to concentrate on not spilling, <laughs> you you're uh, you know it 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 kind of takes you out of the show. So I, I think it would have been nice if they had been able to work that uh, kind of finesse that a little bit. Maybe having specific breaks where the food service happened, or you know having uh, some of it before the, right before the show and some during an intermission. Uh, so I, I, that's what I would advise them to do uh, in in future productions because I think um, it, it it did help. Uh, I mean, aside from the fact that the food was was really good and and we had not one but two glasses of wine, uh, but also uh, you know it, it helps uh, create a feeling of fun and community among the audience. So I, I think that was a plus. I, I just think the timing uh, of the of the service, the food service and the beverage service could have been better. Uh, directed by Dan Swern, by the way. I don't know if I said that. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I had not been to this event space before, but um, it, it's, a, it's a nice place directly opposite the Whitney down on Gansvoort Street. I'm not sure what it's normally used for, uh, 94 Gansvoort Street. Uh, but yeah, Shake and Bake, Love's Labor's Lost. Okay. Uh, Jan, you saw Plot Points in Our Sexual Development at Lincoln Center Theatres. Tell us about that. This is a two-hander, and it's um, it, it's a – well, it's, it's an odd uh, 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 play. Um, it starts with the two – it's by – um, playwright named Miranda Rose Hall, and it starts with two characters sitting on a bare stage, just two chairs. Um, I think there might be a, a door frame in the background, and they're talking to us, and they're talking to us about exactly what the title says. They're talking about various points in their sexual development. Um, from when they were little kids to, uh, you know, the sort of playground adventures that little kids get into uh, through junior high school, high school, uh, college. And at some point during the and, – and the, their, um, the, the stories that they tell are really amusing. 
um, really entertaining. They sort of take turns telling them to us. And then at some point, we realize they turn to one another and we realize that they've been in, that these two characters have been engaged in um, uh, uh, an exercise that they've set for themselves. Their names are Theo and Cecily, and they are a couple, and their relationship is in trouble, and they are hoping that by exploring their own sexual past, they can come to a, a point of resolution um, because, and I don't think there's a way to talk about this without doing a tiny bit of spoiling, Theo is um, a, a trans uh, man and uh, Cecily is uh, a lesbian. And they are trying to find, they are in love they have found, they believe that they've never found anyone else who has understood them, fulfilled them as much as, as one another. And yet there is a difficulty that they are having in terms of their, their sex life. And it's a very short play. It's about um, uh, just a little over an hour. Um, and I walked away from this play with a greater sense of what it, the experience. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I totally get it because I couldn't I don't live it but a greater sense of what it is to be a trans person <laughs> excuse me um, it's beautifully acted by the two actors um, Jax Jackson and Marianne Rendon and um, very simply but very effectively directed by Margot Bordelon. Um, it's an unusual. It's an unusual production. It's at Lincoln Center's uh, Claritel Theater, part of its LT3 program that. <clears throat> does give young playwrights or new uh, playwrights a showcase and it's it, it, it's a very different kind of show I had not seen one like it before and I'd not been actually or I've rarely been uh, as affected by something that was so minimal I mean the again two actors on a bare stage in chairs in clothes that look as though they were clothes they wore from home um, but a, a very effective look at how complex uh, sexuality uh, has become uh, uh, in uh, today's world. Okay, so uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you got a chance to get to 54 Below to see Lorna Luft in uh, two L and back. So let us know about this. Yes, uh, I went to the show on Thursday, October 25th evening, and Lorna Luft um, 
the title ref- refers to the fact that she has been dealing with cancer for some years now, uh, most recently in the form of a brain tumor. Um, but here she is um, back on stage at at Feinstein's 54 Below, just her voice uh, at full power and looking absolutely fantastic. I don't know the details of, of the exact current status of her cancer, but it I don't know if it's called remission, uh, but she just seems really great and really healthy. And, and as I said, a, a very, very much lots of power in her voice. Um, so I was, it was wonderful to see her on stage with the musical director, her husband, Colin Friedman, and her guests were Haley Swindle, Ruth Williamson, uh, and Ernie and David Sabella, brothers Ernie and David Sabella. It turns out David Sabella is Lorna's voice teacher. I did not know that, um, but that was great. And and Ernie, uh, you know, we, we know him from so so many Broadway shows, and it, I had not seen him quite some time, so that was wonderful also. Um, was really glad to be there and to see Lorna doing so well. Um, and it was quite a day for me because earlier that same day, I went to the memorial uh, celebration of life for the great Marin Maisie at the Gershwin Theater, mm-hmm. uh, which was put together by her husband, the wonderful Jason Danieli. And that was a, a beautiful afternoon of reminiscences and performances and uh, with some really amazing speakers, including this fellow Bob Greenblatt, who is the NBC, NBC TV entertainment chairman. Uh, he's I, I think he's outgoing soon. He, he, he right. has decided to leave after a long time, but he is credited with turning that uh, that part of that network around and he uh, it turns out went to high school with Marin Maisie. Oh my gosh. In in Rockford, Illinois and another one of their classmates in high school, believe it or not, was Joe Mantello <laughs> who directed this this memorial for Marin. It was quite quite a beautiful afternoon. The speakers included Terrence McNally and Donna Murphy and and lots of other wonderful people. And I did just want to read um Something that was written by Brian Kello uh, in 2014 for Opera News. Brian Kello was uh, is is also deceased. Um, he was a wonderful writer and editor for Opera News and the author of several books, including a great great biography of Ethel Merman, the aforementioned <laughs> Ethel Merman. So it really all comes together, doesn't it? I I, I wanted to read this because I I found this. Uh, this bit that Brian wrote in 2014 as part of an interview he did with Marin in Opera News. And this is about her extraordinary voice. And what he wrote was, quote, although Maisie possesses a thrilling powerhouse belt voice, her training has a classical foundation. For years, she has exercised the legit part of her voice and her singing has retained a sensuous gleam alien to many of her contemporaries who have belted themselves out of vocal alignment. She began her studies at age 12 in Rockford, Illinois, whose other claims to entertainment fame include Aidan Quinn, Susan St. James, and Barbara Hale. 
quote, this is a quote from Marin. I had a wonderful voice teacher, Stella Rankin. She was fantastic. Those basics were ingrained in me, and they were very much about the legit voice. That's the healthy voice, the voice that all other things come from, belting and everything. When I started studying, all I wanted to sing were Broadway tunes, and Stella had me singing arias. I had that Italian aria book. I did the Jewel song. I was a very high coloratura, but now that I've had a lot of red wine in my life, the lower notes are much better. <laughs> so oh, that really encapsulates uh, Marin and her extraordinary voice and her also her extraordinary sense of humor. Uh, it was a as I said, a beautiful afternoon at the Gershwin. And um, thanks so much to Jason for putting it together and giving us a chance to celebrate that amazing life and that amazing talent. All right. So uh, we'll have links to uh, that stuff in the show notes. The to Ellen back to Lorna Luft at 54 Below was a limited engagement for a few days, and it's already passed. And we have some uh, stories uh, for the Marin Maisie celebration at the Gershwin Theater in the show notes as well if you want to read about that. So before we get on to Peter's, tri- Peter's trivia, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to every- you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Contact information um, for Peter, for Michael, for me, for Jan can be found in the show notes as well as uh, links to things we've talked about today. So let's uh, throw Peter in here and give us an answer to last week's trivia. Okay, Peter, where are you joining us from? <laughs> well, not from Cincinnati, which is where I'll be this weekend, which is why we're doing this early. So I have to ask people's pardon if they answer the question on Friday or Saturday because we're recording on Thursday. So only the people who have answered thus far will be mentioned. But the question was, you may have heard the expression May-December romance, which refers to a relationship between a young person, that's the May, and an older one, that's the December. What musical that involves such a situation actually opened in May and closed in December? And the answer is The Most Happy Fella, in fact, which dealt with the aging Tony and the youthful Amy, or as he preferred to call her, Rosabella. Michael Portantia was again the first to get it, thanks to his distinct advantage, followed by Alyssa Marr, John Moss, Brigadoon, Jack Lesnar, Ingrid Gammerman, Deb Popple, and Samuel Biondo Lilo. So uh, those were the ones to get it, and congrats to all. This week's question, what famous costume designer was fired from a 50s musical that eventually won a Best Musical Tony without her? But then she was hired for the film version of this same show and, in fact, got an Oscar nomination out of it. So that's pretty interesting that she would uh, be fired, not coming up with the right costumes for the Broadway version, but certainly Hollywood thought she did a very good job with the costumes for the same property. So who is she and what's the show? All right. So if you have an answer to that, you can email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Some people for some 